Welcome to this BJSM podcast and it's a follow-up and it's a discussion of what's in the news. I think you're going to really enjoy a conversation with Peter O'Sullivan. Peter's a professor of physiotherapy at Curtin University and you can listen to two other podcasts from him on the BJSM. But today we're going to talk about backs, back pain and specifically back pain in golfers. And there's been a lot of attention on Tiger Woods back in the last couple of weeks because he had some problems and he had to pull out of the PGA. And obviously, Peter hasn't seen Tiger Woods as a patient yet, and I haven't seen Tiger Woods as a patient, but it's an interesting case to discuss. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Carol. One of the elements of Tiger Woods' history in the last year is that on May 31st, he had what was described as a microdiscectomy, and I'm getting this from his own blog. What do you think about microdiscectomy as a treatment? Yeah, um, we see uh, a range of people who have a microdiscectomy. Um, I think the important thing to note there is microdiscectomy um, uh, will be to, with, to take out a piece of disc material, and that will be, um, in the best case scenario, uh, a disc, piece of a disc material that should be present on a nerve causing some form of neurological deficit, plus or minus quarter equinus symptoms, uh, that is, you know, and a progressive disorder. So, um, if that was the case, and I don't know what his case was, then that probably is that would be an a, a um, an appropriate form of treatment. If, on the other hand, this was uh, in a uh, treatment for back pain, that's a different story because we know that um, lots of people, as we've talked before on the previous podcast, have um, disc prolapses in the absence of back pain, and so they're not. It's not a very good predictor for back pain itself. Um, uh, you can also have a disc prolapse that sets up or is associated with an inflammatory process around the perineural structures of a nerve um, that might be associated with leg pain, but in the absence of um, a neurological deficit, the treatment of the disc itself may not be helpful. So when it comes to um, microdiscectomy, it really comes down to what the treatment is for. Uh, and in this case, I don't know what it was for, but... Uh, if it wasn't for uh, significant neurological loss, um, plus or minus quarter equina symptoms, that's progressive, then that would be a concern. And so what sort of recovery is there after microdiscectomy? You know, with a golf context, how long does it take to get back? Well, given that uh, it's likely that he would have had a period of uh, pain and immobility prior to that, so the whole system would have been pretty sensitised, and then he, uh, and assuming that he had ridiculous symptoms as well, uh, then there would be probably a lot of inflammation around those um, neural structures. Then you've got the surgery itself, which in itself is of some form of uh, trauma. Um, then it usually takes some months for that whole process to settle down. You've been basically doubly traumatized. So um, to get back into a, a game like golf, where you're putting huge forces uh, through the body spine, uh, then that would be a period of um, a recovery and then gradual rehabilitation and training to get back into that um, into that sport. So you're talking a period of months, and I would think um, it's got to be greater than three months uh, in terms of getting your body back into some form of conditioning uh, to to even you know to get back into some kind of playing fitness. And. In his blog, um, Tiger Woods wrote that five weeks after the surgery, he had some pain, but that he was told that it was all from the incision. 
Yeah, that's, that surprises me because um, certainly a pain from an incision should be well recovered within a couple of weeks, you would think. Um, five weeks, you would have to be thinking would be um, ongoing sensitivity of spinal structures, um, uh, not from an incision itself. Now, the last thing we got from um, his blog and uh, was that he was said that the surgeon told him that uh, there was no arthritis. He used the word zero arthritis. Now, we know when an athlete's quoting a surgeon, um, there's a bunch of things that can happen. So we're not saying that's what actually was said. But what do you think about likely findings of arthritis in a 38-year-old professional golfer? Yeah, arthritis in the spine is interesting because a lot of people describe arthritis in different ways. For some, it means degenerative change of the disc. For others, it's, it's, uh, um, it's degenerative changes around the, in, uh, the, um, the facet joints. It's pretty unusual that that would be the case given that he's had a disc prolapse. It would be most likely that if he's had a disc prolapse, he would have some changes in his disc, um, which, again, are pretty common and normal. Uh, I think the the numbers are um, 80 to 90 percent of uh, people at the age of I think you see 40, uh, you know, around 40 would, would have yeah would have degenerate discs. So uh, he would be an outlier <laughs> for that to be the case. That's for sure. It, it doesn't it doesn't sound quite right. Maybe the the um, the suggestion that was that uh, the surgery had dealt with the prolapse and that that was all he should consider he should consider himself right to go uh, but the idea of him having a completely clean scan would would be very unusual yeah and again we're underscoring for the listeners that we're using this as a discussion of general principles in back pain and neither is a pretending to have inside knowledge of this case but um, sticking with what was in the media um, before the PGA which was in August there was the quote that Tiger had uh, that he's felt that he's he'd been told that his sacrum had gone out the previous weekend when he couldn't complete a 72 hole tournament, um, but he got this dramatic recovery, and so then he said that it was that his sacrum had gone out and that his sacrum had been put back in. Yeah, that's a concern. I mean, these are common beliefs amongst um, certain manual therapy groups that um, pelvis is going in and out of place, and I I can remember very clearly a discussion I had with a trauma surgeon. Uh, who was in a meeting being told uh, by um, physiotherapist that this happened to pelvis, and he said he laughed. He said, "Look, we see people coming in with motor vehicle, with motor vehicle accidents, and the only thing that's holding is the pelvis. The rest is smashed pieces. These structures are extraordinarily strong. The interosseous ligament and the surrounding ligaments of the pelvis that knit that structure together are the strongest ligaments in the body. Um, we're dreaming if we think pelvises go out of place and." There's a recent um, paper that was published in Manual Therapy by Brett Stuger um, of Norway uh, with a um, orthopedic surgeon, uh, Sturison, who looked at um, one of the most accurate ways of measuring um, joint mobility through um, Steinman pins in the, in, the, in the pelvis and the sacrum and um, looked at people with pelvic girdle pain and, and the, the, the joints barely move, um, let alone go out of place. So... He, I remember talking to him and asking him about these beliefs, and he said it's an illusion. We know that uh, manual therapists are notoriously poor at identifying asymmetries at the best of times, particularly within joints that can measure, uh, have a mobility of uh, at, at the most a millimetre or two. 
So the idea that you can put these structures out of place is not is not evidence based. It's um it's probably a figment of someone's method of training that's identifying maybe some asymmetrical tension in muscles because the the uh, as we know the sacrum is overlaid by a lot of structures. Um, you're not palpating the bones anyway when you put your thumbs on on those um, on those structures. So I think there's a lot of room for misinterpretation with manual therapy. And, and uh, often it's interpreted these these changes that maybe change the muscle tone reflect changes in bone structure and and the, the fact is is that they don't. But to put in context, you feel there is some evidence for certain elements of manual therapy. I'm sure. Absolutely. Look, you know the the problem with these um, perceived asymmetries is that you can do a mus- muscle technique or a muscle energy or. A, um, manipulative technique or manual um, uh, or soft tissue massage and you will see change in something uh, and it's often interpreted that that's a change in pelvic positioning and really what it is probably is a change in muscle tension that can alter stress on pain sensitive structures so you know these positive tests turning negative or vice versa um, uh, kind of reinforce the belief uh, in fact there, I remember a, um, there was a study I can't recall the author a few years ago, again, looking at, at uh, radiological imaging of patients with um, sacroiliac joint pain who were seen to be out of place, and then they were manipulated and they were in place, and the imaging demonstrated there was absolutely nothing changed in the bone position. So there was symptomatic relief, uh, but nothing changed in the bone position, even though the clinical tests changed. And I think what those kinds of studies highlight, and I can I can get that reference to you, uh, Karen, is that... Um, is that we have these beliefs, I think, in the manual therapies, which are actually probably not very helpful because to have the view that your pelvis is going in and out of place doesn't exactly build your confidence in your body, um, and particularly if it goes out when you're, when you're hitting a ball. Um, I don't think they're helpful. Uh, they're helpful things to tell patients, and they're certainly not evidence-based. And I'm sure Adam Meekins will highlight this part of the podcast and... Uh underscore that point so he did if we get back to tiger woods he did have this good recovery between the sunday of this tournament in bridgestone where he couldn't finish the round and then the wednesday when he clearly walked around the practice rounds for the pga pain-free and apparently with good swing now during that tiger woods was quoted as saying he hadn't taken any painkillers but he'd taken non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs yeah right well, well, I, it depends on how you define painkillers, I suppose, doesn't it? But it's likely that would have had an impact on pain. Um, so again, it probably comes down to what is understood by painkillers. But uh, you would expect that in in a case of sensitized structures, that the anti-inflammatories could have um, had a role in that. Okay, and got him swinging freely and walking pain-free. Maybe not the sacrum. Absolutely no, and it, look, it may well be that the um, the manual therapy, uh, well, whatever technique was done, relieved some muscle tension and had some kind of um, analg- you know uh, um, pain relieving effect, and then coupled with the anti-inflammatories, he he was feeling pretty good until he put forces through his back again. Yeah, and that takes us to um, him trying to play two rounds. He didn't play well the first day. He got through um, about four over from memory. And then the second day, another three or four over, and then he didn't make the cut. So um, he came back saying, look, I need to do more core work and abdominal strengthening because I didn't have power. 
how does that read to you? Look, it's interesting because the other thing he noted that because um, uh, once you started sending those um, Twitters, I was chasing some of your feeds and uh, looking at some of the things that he was saying, actually. And one of them, um, interestingly, was he felt like his spine was very stiff. And stiffness is usually generated, if it's transitory, is generated through muscle tension. And I think one of the things that um, is often confused, and we see this as has really emerged in the back pain literature, is that often patients with pain describe stiffness, and the stiffness is created through increased co-contraction of muscles that are, you know, acting as a protective mechanism around pain. Um, and so um, reinforcing more forces through that system may actually not be advantageous. In fact, um, you know, what we see with a lot of people around pain, particularly if the system sensitizes, is that you've got to look at strategies of um, uh, teaching the body to relax and, and get fluid movement, uh, but also generating power with that. So, you know, of course, there's an interplay between needing power and strength, but not becoming stiff, because often what happens with a lot of the exercises that are targeted towards um, increasing core strength teach isometric contraction. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can think of a whole bunch of exercises that are give, commonly given to athletes, which basically teach them to become more rigid. That is not something that a golfer would want, I would think. Um, I've certainly seen a number of golfers in the past who've become highly co-contracted and very tense and has spent a lot of time trying to generate uh, fluid movement back into the system, um, not getting them more tense. And we've often had to back them off doing uh, what would commonly be known as core work. So, uh, you know, I usually say to people, there's nothing wrong with doing a plank, but don't move like a plank. <laughs> because if, you're, if your job is to uh, hit a golf ball, You've got to have a power, precision, but also be relaxed and better generate force just at that split second, but not be stiff in your movement. I reckon if Tiger Woods listens to the call, he's going to be going, well, if you're so smart, Peter, what do you reckon I should do? Look, I'm not pretending to um, you know, have all the answers to, to his issue, but um, I think the first stage... Um, you know, stepping back from his current situation and looking at all the factors that might be interplaying uh, with his pain would be obviously important. Um, you know, how how fast he went into um, uh, back into golf post surgery, whether he had an appropriate period of recovery, whether his um, uh, recovery time uh, and his early uh, rehab time uh, gave him enough. Um, um, you know, opportunity to get his um, control back into his body uh, without becoming caught in a protective pattern of movement. Um, you know, the ongoing support that he has. Um, you know, one of the things we think is very important is to have a realistic understanding of what you're dealing with and having strategies that you can apply yourself to managing it. And I think what often we see with elite athletes is they get enormous amount of treatment, probably over-treatment, uh, and, and often don't have a lot of strategies that they can utilize themselves to actually be in control of their body. So it's a really hard call for me to make a statement to that. But um, but uh, you'd want to stand back and look at all the factors that we know can influence and drive pain. Uh, and the, these are uh, right across the board in terms of neurophysiological, functional, structural, biomechanical, um, uh, his motor control strategies, even around his thoughts and beliefs and... Uh, and um, other factors that we know interplay with that. I appreciate that big picture and 
I guess it's fair enough to say that it fits in with the biopsychosocial model. Um, but just for young clinicians who are listening, you know, can you just take us through the things that would go through your mind, like for you know, a minute or a minute and a half, about your structural assessment like physically in the office? What would you look at if he was there with you? Okay, so uh, with a what with a with a golfer, obviously they're putting rotary forces through their back, and we know that the lumbar spine doesn't have a huge capacity to rotate. Um, the the thoracic spine and the hips do, and so what we often see um, with golfers with back pain is often they become quite guarded through the hips and the thorax, and that puts even more force through the back. Uh, so one of the things that we would be looking at is how much he's how free he is in his drive through his hips, how relaxed he is through the thorax, and the other thing is we know um, uh, with with the lumbar spine is that if you're too extended or too flexed, you really limit the amount of rotary capacity you have in the body. And so you don't want the lumbar spine either too lordotic or into too much flexion because that will really limit your capacity to rotate. Uh, the other thing that we would look at is um, his level of muscle tension uh, through the trunk. If he's too co-contracted around his abdominal wall, uh, back muscles and quadratus lumborum, that's going to create excessive compressive loading. Often you see with pain that people um, uh, end up breath holding or become quite guarded, generating too much in, intra-abdominal pressure uh, within the trunk that ex- increases um, co-contraction. That can make your spine stiffer uh, and generate even more compressive loading forces when you're rotating. And these are the kinds of um, kind of vicious cycles that people with back pain or golfers with back pain get into is that when they're in pain, their body's instinct is to protect uh, and then they kind of get caught in this trap where they're not quite relaxed. They don't have great confidence in their body, and so they, they sort of end up feeding the problem uh, in, in that process. So we would go through a stepwise approach of looking at um, uh, you know, his capacity for movement right through his whole kinetic chain and the level of control and, and, um, and tension in his body through that. And a couple of quick ones before we ask you to look through the, the glass into the future and predict um, Tiger Woods' future. But um, one concrete one, he had the knee surgery a few years ago and, uh, again, in the media, it sounds like he's had a knee reconstruction, let's say someone had early OA. Does the knee affect the golfer's swing? Look, again, I'm not an expert in golf, but we see a lot of people who um, – uh, compensate for one body part by loading another body part. And so um, let's, if he hasn't been well, you know, you'd expect he would have been real re- rehabilitated on that knee. Uh, but if you're putting lots of uh, high levels of forces through a structure like a knee that hasn't been fully recovered, and we know from lots of studies that even three years down the track, there's significant deficits in that limb uh, that will maintain, you know, even after rehab, is that there could be some compensatory, compensatory factors that are influencing further up the kinetic chain. So that is, you know, it's a great point and it's certainly something that you would have to look at for sure. And you mentioned the forces in golf and we imagine someone like Tiger Woods would have to practice driving a lot or to be competitive at that very top level, you need volume. What do you think about the combination of forces and volume at that level? Look, you've got to be in spot on. I mean, you, you probably have to be genetically predetermined to be able to get away with it in the first place. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and then you've got to be in peak condition, both mental, emotional, physical, and lifestyle. Uh, and if one of those systems falls down, you could be at risk. Um, and that's just the nature of, 
the game and particularly at that level. So if there's a breakdown in some of those systems, then you'll become vulnerable. And so just to you talked about your assessment of him. So in terms of advice, let's say you found what you, you know, speculate you might have found, what would you advise? Oh, well, if he's highly sensitive, he's going to have to back off and then rebuild again. Um, you know, there'll be something that he was doing prior to all these injuries that was that was working for him. And the question is whether you can unravel that process to go back to that point to find what he had before. And one of the things I'd be looking at it would be high-speed film or of him prior and then analysing recent film and looking to see whether there are any things that are showing up. Um, with with uh, those kinds of sports, you know, breaking breaking the stroke down into component parts, just small changes in timing between the pelvis and the spine can massively increase forces in a, in a, in a region like the back. So that would be one of the things that you would look for. It may be that he has to have a whole rebuilding phase um, where he just backs off for a period of time and just looks at putting those building blocks together again. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's probably his only option at this stage. And this is mid-August, obviously, and he, his own talk is about December. Does that seem like the window you were talking about for top tournaments? Probably that is realistic. Um, you know, it, you know, a three-month period, you've got someone who's highly focused i mean the, if they've got a you've got a system that's plastic and and they're, they're willing to work on something you can see quite extraordinary changes and very motivated athletes and in, in quite short, short periods of time can tiger woods win his 15th pga major i don't know um look i wouldn't want to put my name to that um uh, it's not looking good for him at the moment that's all i can say <laughs> but um you know if you look at if you look at the um the chances then they're not looking great and there's something really changes for him and one of the things we know about back pain it it's um whether whether it is back pain that stops him will be another question can he manage his back in in a better way then you'd hope so because you know, as you know, I'm a pretty hopeful guy when it comes to dealing with back pain. But in terms of whether he can uh, get to the level that, that is needed to do that, um, based on all the other factors, that's another question. Yeah, and you're an optimistic guy, as you say, and I am as well. I think the whole spirit of this conversation has been to wish Tiger Woods the best with his efforts, and obviously he's given the world a lot of joy. Um, and... We're just using it as a teaching case, really, and there are issues that are being discussed in clinics and in uh, the sporting world. So it's great to get your perspective on something from, as we've underscored, like a, a theoretical angle. Yeah, and look, I think that it really fascinating thing about this whole series of, um, of media releases is that it really highlights this whole issue around beliefs around back pain. That um, we, you know, we hear things like it's related to the disc, it's related to the core, the sacrum's out of place, etc. And we know that those things are not very strongly predictive of of back pain unless you're dealing with, you know, really the very small group with very specific pathology. And so the the answers to dealing with back pain are much more complex and multifactorial, uh, as we've discussed in the other podcasts. And and uh, it's probably a good a good idea to go back and reflect on some of those earlier discussions we had in terms of unravelling the complexity of back pain. And, and that's a good point for clinicians who are dealing with it, I think. Yeah, maybe a last point to finish. Peter, you are a clinician at Body Logic, and you, um, you know, think about this all the time. So saying it's complex and it's you know, hard to unravel, it's understandable and true. Um, but what should the young clinician 
you know, what's a pearl for the young clinician as we close off? I, I think keep it simple. I, I think what, what we tend to do is we make things so complicated. You know, you think of these workshops where they're the 15 axes of the pelvis. You know, the pelvis is a rigid structure that barely moves. Just backing off from the complexity of it and look at the whole kinetic chain uh, and the person as an individual and go back to that as a starting point. Hear the person's story. Listen to the history. Look at basic things like what what the building blocks, the posture and movement are through the whole kinetic chain and then start taking a sensible, common sense approach to understanding that if you've been through a discectomy, you've had, you know, significant pain, you're going to have to have a rebuilding phase. Um, keep, keep the nonsense out of, um, out of dealing with backs, I think, uh, and, and, and keep it a bit, bit more simple in the midst of the complexity would be how I would see it. And, and just a point on that too, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to promote, but we've got an open access website called, um, uh, pain-ed.com, which is really out there to promote evidence-based understanding of back pain. Uh, it's open access. It's no, we we um, we pay for it through um, through uh, running workshops um, that we levy uh, a certain amount of money, and and we got some money from the EU as well. Um, Kieran, Kieran O'Sullivan Island uh, was the initiator of that website, but we've used that to try and help young clinicians actually have a simpler view of back pain that is evidence-based to give them more confidence with dealing with it. For sure, and those sort of community resources are great and free resources are really welcomed and people can access you, Peter, on Twitter, Pete O'Sullivan, PT, and I know you haven't been super busy on Twitter, but it sounds like you're getting a feel for it. And uh, Yeah, look, it's just an interesting... Um, I, I haven't... I've only been a recent... Um, uh, arrival on Twitter, but I, I think it's a wonderful way of rapidly disseminating information, and and I'm trying to use it more to put out the kind of work that we we get access to. And I think one of the things that we see is that um, as researchers, we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to publish our work, but um, a lot of it doesn't disseminate out to the um, the clinicians. And so our real interest is to try and share knowledge that we have acquired. Um, and through the work we were involved in, our research work and clinical work to others. Absolutely. We'll leave it there, Peter. Thanks so much for your time and thanks for contributing to BJSM in a bunch of ways. No, it's always a pleasure. I've, I've, uh, you know, I think you've provided some wonderful leadership in this whole debate and, um, and I look forward to more of them. Thanks a ton. You've been listening to Peter O'Sullivan on BJSM Podcast. If you follow us on Twitter, it's very easy to join up if you're wondering about it. It takes uh, just a second, very little um, privacy information, just an email address, and then you can follow people like Peter O'Sullivan and other wonderful clinicians, Jill Cook, on Twitter easily, and you can get regular BJSM updates. Our Twitter account is at BJSM underscore BMJ. We're on uh, Facebook as well and Google+, and we try to provide lots of resources for the sports medicine community. Thanks a ton for listening and have an active day.